Jesus loves life. Jesus loves all life. Jesus loves his life. Jesus loves your life. Which means if you don't love your life, you're in a bit of a debate with Jesus about that. And I encourage you to take that seriously. That if you don't love your life, you're in a disagreement with Jesus about that because he loves your life. I had someone recently say to me, God wants us to be happy, right, Pastor? And I said, uh, that's a tough one right there. <laughs> that word is squishy. Certainly, the Bible says happy is the man who trusts in Jesus. That's the old way of talking. It often is translated as blessed. It could be translated as well off, even as prosperous. But happy has this edge of never feeling bad to it in American English that, frankly, nobody's happy. Nobody's happy if you're never feeling bad. Huh? Happy is the man who trusts in Jesus. He's the man who, when he's sad, knows he's still blessed. That's why he's happy, right? But it doesn't mean that I never feel bad and never have bad feelings, never struggle, anything like that. Jesus doesn't want you to be happy about evil. He doesn't want you to be pleased with things that are not good. But he does love life. He made life to live. And life is filled with good things. Of course, you know you're here on this Sunday morning listening to me talk. You got up and shoveled all the snow because you know that life isn't what it's supposed to be. That the sinful condition has made things significantly more difficult than they are, even when we repent and believe in him. It could have been perfect. It was paradise. It's not now. But Jesus still loves it. And the lesson of Job is going to kind of give us a good taste of that because Job is exactly the guy who says, I don't think you love my life, God. I don't think you love my life. And after you see what happens to Job, I think if you were in Job's situation, you'd feel kind of the same way. So there's a challenge here for us with Job, and Job is written particularly to help us come through that challenge, to have a wisdom that sees more than just what we feel. But first, I want to emphasize on this Life Sunday, just how much Jesus loves life. Look what he does in our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 9. He has people telling him he is possessed by the devil because he is able to heal blind men and raise dead people. And you know what? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. You accuse me whatever you want. I'm going to keep doing it. Why? Because he loves life. Because he doesn't want us to be chained to our illnesses, our burdens, and our sins. And this portion of life that we have in this temporal age, this temporal world, remember, this life in this age is a portion of your eternal life. This portion of life, he wants you to learn to love it for what it is, not for what, what it could have been, because it's not going to be what it could have been, nor for what you think it ought to be, because it's not going to be what you think it ought to be. But it is going to be what he gives you, and he does believe it's good for you. And again, this is the lesson of Job. Now, if you're born blind, you might find this a challenging thing. God loves me, but I'm born blind. 
And you can imagine that these two men who heard about Jesus walking around raising dead girls, they were like, you know what, buddy? I bet you he can heal us. He's like, yeah, I bet you could heal us. That's impossible. Nobody can heal a blind man. Do you, do you know in the Old Testament, there are prophets who come along and they raise dead people? And everyone's like, wow, it's a big deal, right? But when Jesus heals the blind, it's when they say, no one's ever done that before. And it's true. Because prophets raise the dead, but they never heal people born blind. I've thought about this quite a bit. I bet you here's why. You can fake raising the dead a lot easier than you can fake healing a blind person. I mean, try it at your local assemblies of God or whatever, right? Someone comes in, they're feeling sick, they take a pill, whatever. They almost died. We had it happen to a hamster a week ago. A guy almost died, came back to life. Right? He was cold and dead. He came back to life. He died a couple of days later. But anyway, I know we've had more hamster death in our house. It's kind of ridiculous. But in any case, um, you can, do you see what I'm saying though? Like you can plant somebody who like, oh my goodness, they had a heart attack in the name of Jesus and they're okay. Like you can plant that, plant the guy born blind who can see you can't do it. It's the real test. And Jesus says, I, I passed the test, right? Why? Because he loves life because he wants life to see. He wants us to hear. He wants our voices to sing. He wants our hearts to rejoice. He knows that that won't happen without him because without God, there is no good. You can even hear in German, the words are the same, God and good, they're the same word. Without God, there is no good. Now the sinful man goes like, but, but if God's the only good, then that's not very fun. Like we immediately start to think that way, which exposes our problem. <laughs> we don't even understand what's good for us. We think what's good for us is bad for us. Huh? And again, that's actually Job's lesson too. So now let's, let's go to Job. If you've got chapter 42, that's great. Open in your Bible. If you, if you put your finger there, we're going to look at chapter 1 and 2 a little bit too. Because there's like a parallel between these two. And, and if you don't know the story, you know, here's, here's the super fast version. Job lived a long time ago. He was really wealthy. He was doing really well. And then it all fell apart in like an afternoon. Including his children dying, his businesses falling apart. He gets a disease with boils all over his body. It all goes to pot in one afternoon. And he gets on a pile of ash and he says, why? <laughs> Which I you know, duh, right? Wouldn't you? I say, why when I bump my toe? Let alone when something that bad happens. Why, he says. And then along come his three friends. His three friends who, uh, I'll talk more about them in a moment too, but uh, if, you, if you don't know, you know, they're not really great counselors. Right? They basically come along and say, well, <laughs> you did it to yourself. And he says, wait a minute here. The whole argument is, look, I get it. If you do evil, bad things happen. I get it. We all have sin we don't know about. But honestly, what did I do to deserve all of my children dying and my house falling down and all of my business getting destroyed in one afternoon? What did I do? Tell me. I want God to tell me. And back and forth they go for the whole book. And you can get a little lost in it. It's like an epic poem. Right? It is a challenging text. And as you try to study it, if you do, you'll find there's a lot of debate about Job. Is it even really real is a big question. Or is it just a story? Yeah. Um, well, the, the thing that would make it real would be these guys, Eliphaz the Temite, you know, and um, uh, Bildad the Shuhite, and then Elihu, it mentioned his, his tribe's name as well. Um, I didn't know this. I used to think, and I, I still think it'd be nice to, to suppose that Job is maybe someone like in the era of Melchizedek, like a contemporary of, of Abraham. But what I learned this, this yesterday really was that these names, all of these guys are about three generations descended from Esau. 
almost all these guys. So this is Edom. This is the land of Uz is toward Chaldea while the Israelites are in Egypt. And these are like the grandkids of Haran, right? Um, in fact, Elihu again is like the great, great grandson of Abraham's brother, great, great, great grandson of Abraham's brother, Haran. So this is very much a real thing and in a very real place. And in fact, outside of Judea, right? I, not, well, it's in Judea, outside of the Jewish people. They're all down as Israelites in Egypt right now. And these are people outside of the covenant. But what you do see here is something that you should know is just there behind the whole history of the Old Testament, which is that whenever God talks and changes things, basically everybody believes, the whole world believes for a while or gets very close to it. And then there's like a collapse where it falls apart, right? So when eight people get saved through the flood, guess what? They get off and they all believe God saved them. Every single one of them is like, well, God did that. Huh? But a couple of generations later, they're building a tower, right? And turn everything into, well, a fight. So you have this up and down destruction thing that is always there behind it. That said, again, our lives individually, don't do well with up and down, destruction every day, destruction every week, destruction every year. We want a nice, quiet life. We want a smooth life where we can have our family, get our food, be with our people, relax and enjoy ourselves. I don't know anybody that doesn't want that. Everybody else that's out there working for something, I got a business, I got a job, I got a goal. It's usually so that I can then take some time off. I would do all this stuff so we can, we can rest. And again, the lesson of Job here is, is a little bit, if I can put it short, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter where you go, you're not going to get one whit more or less than what God gives you. Not even an inch. There's nothing that you have right now that you're afraid of losing. That if you lose it, isn't gone because God didn't take it. All of it's gone because God took it. You lose one thing, God took it. You spill coffee. I, I tell you all the time, right? I spill coffee. Who made me spill coffee? Me? Yes. Who let me spill coffee? God? Yes. It's his choice. It's his action. Nothing that you lose is not taken by him, even if the devil stole it. And I'll try to prove that from the text here in, in a few moments. But whenever things go amiss, it is God who lets it go amiss. And the lesson of Job is to, instead of say, why, how come you shouldn't have, to have enough understanding from what you already know about God to say, there must be a good reason for this. It's that simple. There must be a good reason for this. Let's try to do it from the text a little bit here. So you got your finger in 42, but we're back in chapter one, right? And we're just going to kind of fly over the top here. There was a man in the land of Uz. His name was Job. Again, we mentioned that's like Chaldea area, Babylon, uh, toward Haran, where Abraham's brother is, toward Edom. He was blameless and upright. He feared God. He had seven sons and three daughters. So those 10 kids, right? 10 kids. We're going to come back to that. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep. You notice these numbers, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household <clears throat> that was so great, it was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, right? They had seven sons every day, a different mansion, different party every day. They just travel as a family to eat together. What a party. Their three sisters to eat and drink would come with them. Verse five, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. Um, one commentator pointed out, there's only, like in the whole book, there's only like four things, five things that are said that nobody argues with. So if you read the book, every time somebody talks, they argue with whoever just talked. It's kind of, I don't know, like it is when you get in an argument <laughs> a little bit, right? You kind of watch how they talk past each other and it just escalates and back and forth they go. But one thing that Job says here, which is that my sons might have sinned and cursed God, nobody argues with him. Yeah. Uh, also, when he tells his wife, uh, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb, it's on the next page. Naked I shall return, the Lord gave, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, no one argues with that one either. But after this, almost everything else is going to be an argument. Now, it starts then as God says to Satan, as verse 6 and 7, right? The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan said, going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth. Uh, how did this happen? Uh, the sons of God are presenting themselves, the sons of the morning. Uh, is this all the angels getting together and God's going to kind of have an angel party? Um, or uh, is this more like right now where Job is actually out making sacrifices on the pre-Sabbath day for his family? And in fact, this is what Christians do is we gather around God's word. And then God says to Satan, look at my Christian, look at him worshiping me here. Huh? But this is where it gets a little, little tough, right? Uh, verse nine, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and all sides that he has on every side and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So the short of that there is that Satan says, well, the reason people love God is because their life is good. And if their life is good, they won't love God. And God's going to say, well, go ahead. Let's see how that turns out for you. And again, this is the, the mystery of Job, that the Christian isn't a Christian because it's so much better, because we have so much more, because it's so great, because we never have any problems. The Christian is a Christian because it's true. Because it's true. Because it will endure. Now, Satan takes that power right, and he destroys the family, right? He went out from the presence of the Lord. Uh, verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job, said the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians, Sabians, Sabians excuse me, raided them and took them away. Do they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you? While he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job tore his robe. Now, after this, he still won't turn on God and Satan will say, well, there's a, I love this line, verse four of, of chapter two. Satan says, skin for skin, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. After all of this, Job's still like, you know, I'll trust. 
And Satan says, well, once it's your body, it'll be different. And if you've ever had that experience, you know, where your body isn't what it used to be, or really just Luther talks about it this way, we're all fine until we get a cold. And then we're like, why did this happen? How can it be this way, right? And then we get better, we forget about it. We just move on, right? Uh, So skin for skin, uh, until it hits your body. And so, of course, what happens next is he gets the boils all over his body, right? So he's got to like scrape at him with a pot shard or whatever. And then he goes, and and this is where we're all, we'll we'll skip his wife for today. Um, He goes and he sits on this pile of ash. And I got to find that in the text here. Uh, There's verse 12. When they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground. Seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his grief was great. Well, so that's the setup, okay? I wanted to give that picture because chapter 41 and 42 are going to have like a, a parallel bookend piece to it. Like a lot of what just happened is going to happen again, only instead of it being bad, it's going to be good. But there's one big shift that happens, which is pretty prevalent if you're paying attention to the structure of the book. Like if you're having like a a poem where you have like A, B, C, and then C, B, A is your rhyme scheme, right? And you're doing that at the front of the book and the back of the book, but you just don't take B out. Just don't put B in at the back, okay? And B is Satan, okay? So in this whole story about Job and God and losing stuff and getting stuff, all this stuff, Satan shows up at the start and he's nowhere at the end. He's just gone. Also notice that, we'll get to this in the text, God accepts Job. God accepts Job. This will be because Job is looking into Jesus Christ as a savior. And for that reason, Job is something of a savior as a picture. We talked about this with typology often, right? How the prophets themselves are a picture of what's going to come. And so we can see right away how Job going from having everything to having nothing to being kind of restored from the dead and interceding for his friends who don't deserve it so that they can all be with God in a better world. I mean, can you, can you not hear Jesus? Do I have to paint it out for you there? Jesus is all over that, right? So, so Jesus is here behind this. I don't want us to miss this today. Jesus loves life, which is why he wants you to know he loves you the way he loves Job. And though he gives, he may take away. Though he takes away, he will yet give. But there is nothing that you have that is not a given. And you cannot get more by trying, which is why fearing is just a waste of your time. And chief of sinners, I waste a lot of time every week, right? But I don't believe the story when my mind tells it to me. And that's the difference. We fight back with these words, right? And the words of hope we have in Job are this, right? that what we see that God is doing to us isn't all that God is doing to us. Let's say it again. What you see that God is doing to you is not everything that God is doing to you. Job saw everything fall apart, but there was much more coming. And all of it is ultimately to teach a lesson to to Job himself. And I'll try to get to that one here too. We, We definitely do have the time. I want to call out something that happens in chapter, uh, let me look here. If you go to chapter 40, all the way to the end, you had 42, come back to chapter 40. So after all these arguments with the man, God shows up in a big cloud. He shows up in a big whirlwind. He just kind of shouts at everybody. Nobody knows what you're talking about. All of you, you're all wrong. He just kind of says that to everybody. And he challenges Job 
to, to debate back. Because Job's been sitting there on this ash heap saying, you know, Jesus, I don't understand. Jesus, why'd you do what you did? These guys are rude. If you would just show up and tell me why, just tell me why, I'll be okay. So God shows up in like a giant storm. And he says to Job, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 40, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Which is to say, okay, Job, you would like me to talk to you? How about you answer a couple of my questions to prove you can handle the conversation? And then I'll answer your questions. And he goes on this beautiful poem, which if you read chapter 40 and 41 sometime, it's hard not to be caught up in I mean, it's not pretty the way that we make pretty things. I'm not going to say that, right? Americans make pretty things a certain way. But this two giant pages of like pictorial words of nature, it's, it's a giant picture of nature. And how many things are going on in the world that we don't even think about? And they're happening there and they're happening here and they're happening there. They're happening all the time. And God is aware of all of it, all the time. That's the picture that God paints all the way until the end of, of chapter, uh, um, excuse me, chapter 42, 41, right? Where then Job will give a different answer than he gave in chapter 40. Let's compare these. Chapter 40, verses 4 through 5, God says, or Job says this to God. He says, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. So after God's first statement, Job is just silent. But then God makes a second statement, again, about nature. And now chapter 42. Here's where we're going to zoom in on these words. Then Job answered the Lord, as Jesus, and said, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's part one. Part two, you asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That's number two. Uh, Number three, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, so three things he says there. In parts. First one, I know you can do everything. No purpose is withheld from you. This is the point again, right? Jesus has a plan. Jesus knows what he's doing. Now, God says, here I am. I'll tell you what, I, what, what, what I'm doing if you can tell me about where the mountain goats are and how Leviathan swims and all other things. Then you can challenge me on whether I know what I'm doing. And he says, you're right. You're right. You do whatever you want. That's who you are. You're the almighty God. And then he says in verse three, you, God, asked, who is this who hides counsel with knowledge? Now he's confessing his sin. He's saying, God, you said that I'm one who speaks like an idiot. Therefore, I have. (laughs) He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, right? Uh, So one, God, you're in charge. Two, you said, I don't know what I'm talking about. You're right. And three, three, listen. Let me speak. You said, I will question. You shall answer. This is interesting. This is very Abrahamic. He says, but God, you told me if I listen to you, I get a chance to say something. You see that here? 
He's, he's holding on to this from the very start. You're right, God. You know everything. And I'm wrong. You're correct. You did say I get to talk. And what's he say when he gets to talk? He says, now that I see you, I'm sorry. I abhor myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Now I'm going to challenge that here. I'm going to challenge that a little bit here. That in, the word in. It's a different Hebrew word than when he goes into the dust and ashes back in chapter one and two. Uh, here the word is more like about or concerning as opposed to being inside. So I'm asking a lot of you here as Bible reading Christians to just accept this because it's going to change the whole book. It changes the whole book, this one word. Because you have two ways of looking at this. One, Job has stuff go bad. Job puts dust and ashes on his head and says, why God? I'm sorry, why God? And God comes and says, well, I did what I want. And Job's like, you're right, why God? I'll just be in dust and ashes, why God? And then the book's over. Or he's in dust and ashes, why God? God comes and says, because I know what I'm doing. And he says, I'm sorry for putting on the dust and ashes. I shouldn't have. I should have known you had a plan. I really do think that's what he's saying here. I repent of the dust and the ashes. I repent of the pessimism. I repent of the disbelief in your governance and care. I repent of the distrust, thinking you don't know what you're doing as you prepare me for the life you made for me and give me from start to finish. I repent of all of that. And what's he do? He gets out of the dust and the ashes. The story doesn't tell you that part. It just goes on. Just like that, he's married and having kids again. Why? Because he got out of the dust and ashes. I'm going to shift and come back. There's a phrase out there that we want to be really aware of. It's, it's a dangerous idea. It's called the prosperity gospel. This is the idea that if you're a Christian, you're just always going to have it good. You're always going to be getting better, always going to be making more. And if you're not, it's because of one of two things. You don't give enough money to your church. <laughs> They really say that. Uh, or uh, you've got some hidden sin somewhere. You know, somewhere deep inside, you're not telling everybody about who you really are, and so God's not going to bless you. It's a very terrifying way to live, thinking of God that way, where you've got to kind of prove yourself based on the results you get out there. <laughs> you know, you get a traffic ticket, and somehow it's because you like, what, got up on the wrong side of the bed and didn't pray enough this morning? What a horrible way to live. The, the prosperity gospel is a lie, and we want to stay away from that. But we want to capture the true prosperity of the scriptures, which teaches us, again, that, that God loves your life, that Jesus loves your life, that he gave your life, and he doesn't plan for it all to be horrible all the time. That's not what he desires for you. He desires for you under him to live in quietness, and blessedness. See, we don't really want quietness and blessedness. We want money, raucous parties, and good times, right? And then those lead to trouble. But he wants quietness and blessedness for us. This is a promise that he's given to us. And if we walk away from our trials, right? We run into the problems. There's a problem. There's a problem. Instead of always trying to fix it as if I'm God, walking past the trial, trusting in the God who is, Many times we'll turn this trial into the path you needed most for the issues you're most trying to fix. Now, again, the story of Job is, is just, a, I don't want to say just a story. I don't mean that, but it, it isn't you, right? What happens to him is not what's going to happen to you today when you go home or the next time something goes bad in your life or what have you. But what happens to him is a picture of how God never takes without intending to restore more. 
And this is where that bit about the devil being not here anymore is, is super important too. So let's uh, zoom down to after Job, Job intercedes for uh, his friends and so forth, uh, verse 12 and following, where it says that God blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And here now it says he has 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. Um, that is, that is 22,000 counted things, which is its own weird little thing. 22 is a weird number in the Bible. But more important than that one right now is the fact that every single one of those numbers is double what he lost. Precisely double what he lost. And in Torah, Moses, the law says that if somebody steals from you, you're supposed to repay double. The commentary I read that told me that is that's a good thought. They said, see, God stole from him and repaid double. Same commentary that told me there was somebody missing in the latter part of the book that was there in the first part of the book. You know who's missing? Is the thief. The devil's gone. And everything he took restored double. Nothing in this life can be taken from you except for by God. Nothing in this life is given to you except for by God. And he loves this life. He made it for you. And so again, Job gets these blessings so we might know that whatever we lose now, there's more coming. That means both today, that means both next week, and that both means in the life of the world to come. And the picture of family that arises next with again, the seven sons and three daughters, 10 more children who come. You have to imagine these are faithful. The fact that he gives an inheritance to the daughters, unheard of unheard of in the ancient world. It, it meant a very special thing. And again, we could ponder that. But all of it here is to show that when you run into the cross, right, the cross in your life, and I'm not talking about the one with Jesus on it. I'm talking about the one he puts you on. When you run into that cross, there's one of two things. There's woe is me. There's poor me. There's dust and ashes. There's what did I do, God? And then, then there's glory. Then there's he must have a good reason. There's, I was doing all of this and he said no. So, well, he is all wise, is he not? And I suggest to you, that's a much simpler way to live. Though I'll also admit I'm right there with you. I slip up every single day. I'll admit just this morning, I could barely make myself want to preach. Why? Because I messed up. And it was in my head for a little bit and it ran around. That's what being Job is. We mess up. We don't see the sin. Our children, our family, our friends, they have things that come to us that we don't keep out that maybe we should. Or we send things out to them that we shouldn't send out. And around and around, the sin and lies of the devil go. And we can let that be a story that makes us so afraid we won't leave our house, our home, or do anything out of the box because we're afraid that, again, God's against us. That's where Job was. God's against him. And I'm at pains. I'm out of time. I just want you to know God's not against you. God's for you. Jesus loves life. He loves his life. He loved it so much he made yours to give it to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.